can be excused to go to their classes now if they'd like to. And we are back in the book of Matthew. So we took a break uh, from the summer, uh, from the summer, for the summer, uh, and went through a nuts and bolts uh, series, and, and we've wrapped that up now, and we're back in Matthew. We're kind of jumping into an odd spot in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's just the kind of the where we landed. So, um, you know, welcome back to Matthew. We're, we're going to be in, in chapter 14 where we talk about Herod and some horrible things he did for a minute. So, yeah, chapter 14 tells us about a guy named Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch or the governor of this region of Galilee during this time um, he had previously arrested John the Baptist. You guys, I think, probably know this story. And he, and he executed John the Baptist. Uh, even though he knew John was a, a good man and a godly man, in Mark 6.20, it tells us that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and so he kept him safe while he was in prison. So even though he imprisoned him, he, he kind of made sure that he was safe because he was kind of afraid of what might happen if, if he didn't keep him safe, uh, knowing that God was on his side. So why would he arrest him, you might ask? Well, for the simple reason that John the Baptist called out Herod in his sin. Because Herod had a, a brother named Philip, a half-brother actually, uh, and they both shared a niece named, she was called Herodias. It's a gross story, I told you. Uh, he goes over to visit his half-brother Philip, who's married to Herodias, and says, oh, I, I think it'd be great if she became my wife. So he steals his half-brother's wife for himself, and, uh, and she goes back with him. And John the Baptist called him out and said, that's sinful. What you're doing is not pleasing to God. And, and that's never an easy thing to do or a popular thing to do. Uh, you know, here comes John just wrecking all the fun. And so he throws him in prison. Um, calling out sin, though, is sometimes the most loving and gracious thing that we, we can do for somebody because we're warning somebody that one day they're going to stand before God and, and give an answer. And so this is actually a compassionate thing to do. Um, but that's not the way Herod and Herodias saw it. <laughs> So, uh, you know, I have always appreciated the people in my life who are willing to, to say, hey, Brent, what you're doing is not okay, or, or call me out when, when I need to be called out. That's actually a blessing. So Herod puts John to death, and then we're going to read about this in just a second, but I'm just giving you the kind of the, the thumbnail version. And then Herod starts to hear about all of the miraculous things Jesus is doing all over the place, and he thinks to himself, uh-oh, John the Baptist is somehow resurrected in Jesus, and he's coming to get me. I think that's what's going on in his mind. He's freaking out a little bit, like, what's going on here? And so this is kind of the, the preface to what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at the feeding of the 5,000, but Matthew places this before that so that we can get an idea of what was going on and how Jesus was feeling right before this miracle took place. Okay, Matthew 14, starting in verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And he wanted to put him to death, but he feared the people because they held him in high esteem or they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. That's a stupid thing to do, by the way. <laughs> Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry because of his oaths and his guests, and he commanded it to be given. And he sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew himself from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. 
John the Baptist, Jesus said, is uh, the greatest man ever born among women. And that was his fate for following God. I could go a whole sermon here on the prosperity gospel and how wrong it is, but I want you to see uh, John the Baptist was pleasing to God, lived a life that honored him, and this is what happened. And sometimes that's the way things go for Christians. And John got his reward early. That's the good news. But when Jesus, you know, Matthew places this account right before this amazing miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 to kind of show us why Jesus was in part withdrawing away by himself for, for a minute. This miracle, by the way, is an amazing miracle. It's, it's the only miracle other than the resurrection that's found in all four Gospels. Um, and I love this, this, this story because we get to see both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus in this account. So we, we have Jesus wanting to, to grieve this loss. Um, it's possible that hearing about John the Baptist's death even prompted him to start to think about what soon awaited him because he was going to you know, have a, a very similar fate very quickly. And so, so you can kind of imagine why he would want to just get away and, and pray and contemplate a little bit about this. But Jesus was so famous at this point that the crowds are following him everywhere. And they, they can't wait to see what he's going to do next. And so they want to see the show. So no matter what Jesus is doing, they don't, they don't care if he's grieving. They don't care if he's sad. They want to come and find out what's happening. Um, what's he going to do next? And this is still kind of a, a very real thing today. It's why many people go to church to be entertained and to, to feel some excitement and to see something you know, amazing, experience something amazing. And the sad part of this is that you can, you can do all of that and still completely miss Jesus. The, the main event is Jesus, and you can, you can do all these things and miss Jesus. How is that possible? But you even see it in this day. When this is over, after all these people are fed, they, they, these people don't connect the dots to what really took place. God was in their midst doing something amazing, and, and they were just excited about, you know, the wrong stuff. They only seem to be interested in the show and getting their bellies filled and having a great experience. And this is the extent of many people's church experience or Christianity, if, if you can call it that. You know, just imagine if your kids interacted w- with you this way. This is the only thing they, they wanted you for. It's like, hey, can, I need money. You got any food? Um, can I borrow the car? Can you watch the kids? That's the extent of your relationship with your children. H- how would you feel about that? I would be so discouraged that that's all I was to my kids, right? A wallet, a fridge, a chauffeur, and, and a babysitter. But for many people, this is how they treat God. They view him as like he's this butler that's there just to make their lives easier and, and more comfortable. And that's all he is. That's a great question for you to consider, by the way. Do you follow God because you want him or because you want his stuff? Are you in love with him or are you in, in love with the things he can give you? So with that in mind, we, we pick things up in the story of the feeding of the 5,000 in verse 13, um, right after Jesus gets this report about John the Baptist. Verse 13 says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away into the villages to go buy, and food, go buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said, A blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. 
Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So this section starts out with Jesus seeking to be alone. He's interrupted by the crowds who have many needs. So he, he tends to these needs, healing them and feeding them. And then he uses the same opportunity to, to teach the disciples and, and really to reveal who he is. And then it ends with him dismissing the crowds, dismissing the disciples, and finally being able to get this chance to go off by himself to, to pray. So what do we learn about Jesus through this account? And what does he want us to learn uh, for ourselves? I'm going to talk about four things. First one is that Jesus is compassionate. The second one is that Jesus wants to involve us in the work that he's doing. The third one is that Jesus is more than capable of meeting our physical needs. And then the last one is Jesus is the answer to our most pressing need. So first one is that Jesus is compassionate. It can be easy for us to only see the, you know, the divinity of Jesus sometimes, the fact that he was God, and, and forget that he was fully human. He, he was like us in every respect except for the sin part. So that means Jesus had bad days. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be thirsty, uh, to be betrayed, to be discouraged, to be tired, and he knew what it was like to suffer the loss of somebody that he loved. He just received this terrible news, and, and it makes sense that he would, he would want to just be by himself for a minute. But the crowds didn't care about that. They were only concerned about, like I said, what the next big thing was going to be. And so verse 14, it says, Jesus, this is what I imagine it would say, Jesus went ashore and saw the great crowd, and he was irritated and told, told him to go on now, get, go home, leave me alone. That's what I would have done. It's not what Jesus does. He's just so amazing. I mean, that, that's exactly how you would want to act at that time. Leave me alone. Can't you see I'm sad? You guys are here for the wrong reasons too. You don't even want me. You just want my stuff. Your motives are all wrong. I could, I, this is how I play it out in my head. You don't appreciate me. But instead it says he was filled with compassion when he saw how needy they were. Isn't this cool that our God is a God of compassion? It caused Jesus to put his own needs aside, forget about those, heal the sick, feed them, and, and, and just forget about what he was going through. Jesus saw that they were hurting and needy, and his love moved him to action. And this is the same, the same compassion and the same love he had for us when he went to the cross. He sees our great need, he puts himself aside, and he goes and does what he needs to do for those that he cares about. And, and I love this about him. And we sing a song that says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? And, and this is captured in that. Having compassion for people is certainly easier said than done. I, I can't, you know, usually I'm, I'm more the, apt to pretend like I've done something, you know, hey, you know, I'll be warm and fed. God bless you. I'll pray for you and get out of there as quick as I can without having to do something. But that's not what Jesus's compassion was like. It moved him to action. And as followers of Christ, this is what we should be known for. We should be like our, our Lord in this. We should have compassion for people. Our love should resemble him and, and the way he was with people. And, and I would just ask you, like, if we were to get a letter from Jesus, you know, to, this, to the church in America or to this church even, how would we fare? How would we do when it, when, when it comes to this? Is this? Are we doing good in this department? Is this something the church is, especially in America, is well known for right now? Compassion for people? <laughs> not, not really. We're, we're more known for the things we don't like about people and the things we hate. 
We just are. I don't see, I see a lot of things coming out of Christians, irritation, consternation, condemnation, you know, just not a lot of compassion very often. And don't misunderstand me. Compassion doesn't mean you condone what people are doing. That's not it at all. It means you have a sympathetic heart toward them and a a desire for them to find God. I, I would argue that John the Baptist was compassionate to Herod and Herodias and what he said to them. I remember somebody coming to me when I was a non-Christian. Uh, we used to go down and, and cruise the Strip. That's how old I am in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Not a big Strip, but we would go down there on Friday and Saturday nights and drive and, and you know, get into trouble. That's what we did. And I remember this Christian guy. He would come up and knock on your window and want you to roll down your window, and he'd be there with a track trying to tell you about Jesus. And I was not nice to that guy. But I remember that the compassion that he had to go and do that was real. He cared about people. He cared about where they were going to end up. And God used that. I remember that there was this thing that stuck in me of like, I'm not okay with God. And that night, I went and found that guy later and said, hey, I became a Christian. And in part, it's because of what you did. You know, that's compassion, right? Aren't you glad that somebody had enough compassion for you to tell you about your need for God? And aren't you glad that God is a God of compassion who overlooked your sin, you know, put it on his son instead of didn't overlook it, but put it on his son instead of putting it on you? You know, here's the thing is, is this should just be pouring out of us if Christ is in us to the people around us. And I know you guys understand compassion. I know we all get it. But it, like if you were in a place and you saw a little kid that had been separated from his father and, and they were lost and scared, you would naturally have compassion and you would do whatever you could to try to reunite them. We would all do that. And this world is full of lost, scared people who have been separated from their father and they don't know what to do. And we're walking around like we just don't care that much about it. And we have the answer. Somebody shared that with us so that we could be reunited to our father and have a relationship with him. And we need to be that kind of compassionate people. The fact, by the way, that Jesus has this unrelenting compassion for brokenness when he sees it, like he could have thought about all that he wanted to do that day and and forgot. No, the brokenness compelled him to action. It tells us that he doesn't like it. He doesn't want it this way. And he wants it to go away. And I don't know about you, but that's really exciting for me to think about. There's going to be a time when brokenness is over. All my brokenness, all my sinfulness, all the ways that I fall short is going to be over and done with. And, and if you're part of his kingdom people, those who have bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord and confessed that he is Lord and believed in his death, burial, and resurrection, you get to experience an eternity with none of the brokenness, none of the evil, none of the sin that corrupted this world will be there. And we have the answer to, to tell other people about how to get to that same place. So don't ever underestimate the power of compassion. It will stick out like a sore thumb in this messed up world when people see it. They'll they'll recognize this is different. And in fact, I would say that's partly what people loved about Jesus. It wasn't just the healing and the miracles. They saw this man who cared about people, genuinely loved people. And and that was a testimony of something different than what they've been seeing. So as followers of Jesus, we want to be compassionate. We want to make sure that we're we're, um, doing kind and, and loving things in the world, but not just for the sake of doing kind and loving things. This is what the whole social justice movement is about and gets so wrong. If it ends there, what have we done really? Have we changed anybody's eternity? Maybe, maybe not. But if, but if we can do these things and then connect the dots to a savior and, and that's the end of it, then, then this is worthwhile. This is what we need to do. So we want our compassion to lead people to eternity with God. So Jesus was compassionate. The second thing we see in this is that Jesus wants to involve us in his work. I like to think about 
what it would have been like for the little boy with the lunch that day. Matthew's account doesn't mention him, but the other gospels do. Uh, or even what it would have been like for the disciples on that day. Uh, first, we have the disciples who, you know, they, they see the problem. I like this. They, they identify quickly. They're eager to identify the problem and point it out to Jesus, which I'm good at that too. I can see stuff like that really clearly. So verse 15 says, when it was evening, the disciples came and said, hey, this is a desolate place. And the day's now over. Send the crowds away into the villages so they can get some food for themselves. This seems like a very reasonable plan to me. Very logical, reasonable. I like it. It's a good plan. Hey, tell those guys to get out of here so that they can go get some food. Smart. What Jesus says to them, though, would have caused me a lot of stress. He says they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And it's like, what? How in the world is that supposed to happen? We don't have anything here. John's account says Jesus, lifting his eyes and seeing the large crowd uh, coming toward him, said to Philip, where are they to buy bread? Or where are we going to buy bread so these people may eat? And then it says this, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do already. So, so he's testing them. Well, what's the test? He's asking them to do something that they don't have the power or resources to do, right? And he does the same thing with us, by the way, when he asks us to get involved in ministry. Um, I, I've, I've watched the look on some of your faces when we ask you to get involved in ministry, and it's very similar. I mean, none of us feel adequate in this department. We all feel like, well, there's no, what can I do? Um, should that stop us? No. Does it stop us? Almost every time. You know, we, we just, we're afraid. We don't think we can do it. And we can easily give the disciples a hard time. I mean, I think of these guys, like, you walked with Jesus this whole time. You've watched what he can do. You really think, you know, he's not going to come through for you. You know, you have little faith, you weak little disciples. You know, you, uh, you do this thing. And then, but they would be saying the same thing to us right now, wouldn't they? I mean, you guys saw the resurrection. You, they hadn't even seen that yet. And they were, you know, you guys don't, you don't think Jesus is going to come through? I mean, how daft can you be? We do this thing all the time. Do you think Jesus was surprised by anything that took place that day on the feeding of the 5,000? No. Did he have to scramble to come up with a plan? No. John's gospel said he knew what he was going to do already. If Jesus knew what he was going to do that day, do you think it's reasonable to assume that he knows what he's going to do today, tomorrow, next week? Yeah, he knows. Every Christian I know says they believe that God is in control. They do. Um, but very few of them act like they believe it, including me. We can say that all day long. I believe he's in control. But do we? God knows all of our needs. He knows how to meet our needs. He delights in meeting our needs, and it's not hard for him to meet our needs. Do you believe that? You know, we all have a little Philip in us that, that clouds our, our faith, um, uh, you know, Thomas earned the nickname Downing Thomas, which I, I bet he didn't vote for that. But it's like, really? Come on, guys. Can, can we call me something better? That's not a great nickname. But I think Philip could have been called Realistic Philip pretty easily. Maybe Negative Philip, but we'll go with Realistic. I love Philip's response to, to Jesus saying, you know, you feed him. He says 200 denarii would not be enough to buy bread for each of them to get a little. So he's, he's like, I, I can relate to Philip. It's like, you give me a, an idea, you give me some kind of a something you want to do, and I'll tell you all the reasons it can fail. I'm really good at it. It's, it's like a gift I have. <laughs> it's like the, the other pastors love it, and my, I'm fun at parties. If you ever want, if you ever an idea you want to run by me, I'll be able to tell you everything that could go wrong, even stuff that, you know, might go wrong. But this is what he's saying. Like seven months' wages wouldn't be enough for, for uh, you know, everybody to get just a little bit, Jesus. This is impossible. This isn't going to happen. And humanly speaking, 
Philip's absolutely correct. There is no human way possible for this to happen. You can't spontaneously feed a group of people this large. And that's really what Jesus is asking them to do. You know, I have a hard time if two people show up at my house and they want, I have to come up with a meal real quick. It's like, oh no, what am I going to do? 5,000? That's crazy. But we're not dealing with what's humanly possible here, are we? Jesus is not limited in that way. So I don't think Jesus really expected the disciples to come up with a solution here. Um, I think he wanted them to see the impossibility of the situation so they would cry out to him as the answer, right? And not look to themselves. We always look to ourselves. We don't rely on him. And this is what he's trying to do. So I can picture this impromptu meeting with the 12 disciples kind of putting their heads together and going, all right, Jesus says we have to feed him. What, what do you guys got? What are our assets? You know, it's like, all right, we got two. Yeah, it's like a Holocaust cloak would have come in handy right then. Different movie. Sorry. What are our assets? Like, you know, two, two, two fish and five loaves. That's not a lot, you know, and they got to go back with Jesus and say, hey, this is, this is what we came up with. I mean, can you imagine how silly that would be? You guys feed them. It's like, here, that's it, right? Were they missing anything? Did they have another asset that maybe they overlooked? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus is on their team, and he's on our team. You know, we, we, we tend to inventory all the, all the things when we start to plan a ministry or do something like that, and, and somehow we forget Jesus. <laughs> That's a mistake. When it comes to the work uh, that Jesus is asking of us, we have no real excuses. We come up with all kinds of stuff. I don't have enough talent. I don't have enough time. I don't have money. I don't have this, that, that, you know, but are any of these things obstacles for God? No. So even though he doesn't want us or doesn't expect us to, to figure out all this stuff on our own, he, he might test us so that we will cry out to him and, and rely on him. He, but the bottom line is that he wants us to be a part of God's work. I don't know if you ever really thought about this, but this is incredible that he wants to include us in what he's doing. I, a pastor one time was talking about how it's kind of like when, when it, a dad brings his kid to, to, you know, go to work with dad day or whatever they call that thing. It's like nobody expects that kid to sit at the head of the CEO table and actually do anything that day, right? No, he's just there to, to watch dad work and kind of fumble around with some things and, and enjoy time with his father. And that's, I don't know exactly why, we don't have much to offer, but Jesus delights in spending time with us, and he delights in watching our faith grow as we see these things happen. Can you imagine what this little boy would have been like that day? I mean, think about what he went home and told his family. You guys won't believe what happened today. I had my lunch, and Jesus took it, and he did this with it. You know, what did he have to offer, really? Not much, a, a measly little lunch. That's it. And look what Jesus, look what God did. And you guys have been a part of that before. You ever been in a conversation with somebody that all of a sudden stuff starts flowing out of your mouth and you're talking about, I mean, it's just amazing. Or you're in a, in a Bible study situation, the, the ministries that are going on, it's amazing to be used by God. And, and we get to be used by him because he, he, he delights in it. So this little boy is a, a great example for us. He offered what little he had, and then he sat back and watched God go to work with it. I love that um, God uses us in this world as his hands and feet. I don't understand why. He doesn't need us. We don't have that great ideas or that, you know, not a lot to offer really. But he uses us to meet the physical needs of other people and the spiritual needs of other people. And as a way to really drive this lesson home, I love what happens with the disciples when he, he basically, the crowd finishes eating. He tells the disciples, hey, they have these big baskets. That's what they're d distributing the food in. And he said, hey, we'll grab those baskets and, and go pick up all the leftovers. And I think this is funny. I, I can imagine them thinking, right, Jesus, there's going to be leftovers because we started out with this. And, and sure, we'll go, we'll go gather the leftovers, Jesus. Okay. So they go out, the 12 of them, each with a basket, and, uh, you know, whatever. We'll humor him, you know, 
whatever Jesus asks will do. So, and then they, they kind of make their way back. And can you imagine the looks on their faces as each one of them walks back with their own basket full? 12 baskets, 12 disciples. It's not a coincidence. It's pretty amazing. I mean, what's God telling them? I, I can do this. I, don't, I, 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 can, I can do, you know, they, they ended up with more than they came with. And that's what ministry's like, you know? We, we will always end up with more than we came with. It's an amazing thing. So God is able to supply for the needs of his children without breaking his sweat. There's that verse in Ephesians 3 that says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, that's who God is. You know, it's just, it's beautiful. So yes, Jesus shows his humanity and his compassion for people through this account. Yes, he shows that he's able to to meet needs and that he enjoys uh, us getting involved in what he's doing. But there's something far more important that Jesus is teaching us here through these miracles, and that is his divinity. So if there was like a big E on the eye chart of this thing, that's the one that he wants us to really see. Imagine Jesus telling the crowds to sit down and and taking this little bit of stuff that he had and um, giving thanks and asking a blessing for it in front of them all. And then he begins to break the loaves and the fish and break the loaves and the fish, break the loaves and the fish. And, And it just keeps going out and going out and going out. I mean, I don't know how long this would have taken, but anybody there watching this would have been amazed. 5,000 men, it says. And so it says they weren't even counting the men and the women, or the women and the children there, which would have been four times probably the amount. So you're talking over 20,000 people are probably at this gathering. And he just keeps, I mean, I don't know if you understand what's happening here. It says that they all ate till they were satisfied, by the way, which is like, they didn't all just get a bite. Like sometimes at communion, you just, you know, they, they ate till they were satisfied. And I've seen some of you folks eat, you know, it's not, it's not all the same. It's, 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 it's subjective, but until satisfied can mean a lot of food. Now, to be clear, what's going on here is Jesus is supernaturally, spontaneously regenerating something. Okay. This is literally impossible unless you were able to will things into existence right? I mean, who can do that? Well, I know, I know of one. I know about a person that said, let there be light. And there was light. And there's a person here that's saying, let there be fish and loaves. And there are fish and loaves. Who could this be? See, this is what I I don't know. I don't know why people miss this, but it's right there. Jesus is God almighty. And he's in their midst. And he's doing stuff that is unmistakably something that only God can do. He is the one who spoke creation into existence, and he is the one that turned two fish and loaves into enough food for that many people, and that means that we can trust him to meet our daily needs, to be our daily bread, to provide all that we need in ministry and in life. You know, I just think about the the people in the wilderness. Again, how did God feed them? Bread from heaven, right? Manna, which means what is it? I love that. Just every day, bread. God is capable for for, uh, providing for his people. And here's the neat thing to think about. The people that came that day were strangers, right? He took the time to heal and care for, feed strangers. Are you a stranger to God? No. If you're a Christian, he went to the cross and died in your place. You are no stranger to him. You think he's not going to take care of you? If he died for you, do you think he's not going to meet your needs? I just, I mean, this is who our God is. This is amazing. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Uh, George 
Uh, Mueller, most of you guys have heard of George Mueller. If you look up faith in the dictionary, there's a picture of him there. Not really, but, but he's known as like a man of faith. And he had a little plaque on his desk that says, it matters to God about you. And, and he felt that 1 Peter 5, 7 kind of, that's what it meant. And if you know the story of this guy, he didn't think he had incredible faith. He just said, I just believe the promises of God. God said he would provide for us. God said he would meet our needs. And so I believe that. And he thought that's all it was. I think he had more faith than me. But, and there's a story, and I, you know, I know you guys have heard it, but I just, when I read it, 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 it gives me chicken skin every time I hear it because it's just such an amazing story. And so he had an orphanage, and uh, one day there was nothing in the orphanage to feed the kids. And this is kind of how it goes. One morning, all the plates and the cups and the bowls on the table were empty. There was no food in the larder, which is a pantry, but larder's what it says, and no money to buy food. The children were standing and waiting for their morning meal when Mueller said, children, you know we must, we must be in time for school. Then lifting his hands, he prayed, dear father, we thank thee for what thou art about to give us to eat. So he, he just gives a, a prayer of thanks to God for the food they're about to receive. And there ain't no food. There's a knock on the door. The baker is standing there. And he said, Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at 2 a.m. and baked fresh bread, and I have brought it. It's pretty cool, right? Mr. Mueller thanked the baker, and no sooner than he had left when there was a second knock on the door. This was the milkman. He announced that his milk cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage, and he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so he could empty his wagon and repair it. You know, I mean, just think about this. Nothing. He, he trusts God, and these orphans probably didn't get fresh-baked bread and fresh milk every morning, and this was probably a treat. And this is what God is like for us. It's not hard for him to provide for, for our needs. He didn't even break a sweat feeding 20K with a, with a little boy's lunch. We can trust him to meet our physical needs, but more importantly than that, we have a greater need, and we can trust him to meet that need as well. Yeah, I love, you know, the disciples, of, when you read this account, this, the people had this great need, and their, their solution was this, let them take care of it themselves, right? Let them, let them figure it out themselves. Aren't you glad that's not what God said to us? Let them figure it out, because we wouldn't figure it out. We have as much chance of figuring out our spiritual deficit as we do multiplying fishes and loaves, right? We're not going to be able to do it. We can't purify our hearts we can't make ourselves right before God, but Jesus can, and he's willing to if you'll trust him by faith and receive the gift that is salvation. This is the good news of the gospel. We need Jesus to meet our need, or we will continue to be hungry and thirsty for all eternity. But Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven, right? And he says that whoever comes to him shall never hunger. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Have you fed on this bread? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the bread that came down from heaven personally? You can. He's made himself available to us. And, and here's the other cool thing. If you do already know him, you know where the bread is, right? <laughs> and we get to go and tell other people how they can also no longer be hungry or thirsty because of him. So this is the story of the, the feeding of the 5,000, and uh, it just makes me worship our great Lord, even more and love him even more. So, Father, thank you so much that we get to enjoy these accounts of, of what you did while you walked this earth, that we get to see both 
your love for people, your compassion and your humanity and also your divinity, that you are God Almighty who can do anything. Thank you for becoming our bread that we needed for life. Uh, thank you for making yourself available to sinners so that, so that we don't have to spend eternity without you, but that we get to enjoy you today and every day. And Lord, I just pray that if, of those, those of us who know this, that we would be more than willing to share this bread with the, the people around us, that, that we would go out into this world, Lord, and, and plead with others, to have compassion for others, to let them know that there is a God who loves them and that they can have a relationship with through your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask for amazing things to happen through this church in his name. Amen.